0: Osiris. This podcast is In The Loop, the legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.
1: Los Angeles, summer of 1965. Jim Morrison sat on a rooftop in Venice, He lived up there, with the clothes on his back, a notebook, and a tattered paperback copy of Edith Hamilton's mythology. The bloody red sun of fantastic L.A. sank into the sea. The smog intensified the colors. Poison never looked so lovely. Bright blue overhead, purple haze fading into a dark red, rising up from the edges. LSD surged luminous across the blood-brain barrier. Morrison could hear the colors. He acquired a vial of LSD that spring. He lived on that, the kindness of acquaintances, and fruit he grabbed off of backyard trees. Three stories below, shadows fell on the sun-blasted streets of his beach town, pavement still shimmering in the fading heat. Cars rolled by, all stuffed with eyes. He saw people walking and talking, heard laughter and cries, heard poems, prayers, and lies. Conversations drifted upward and collided with memory. He climbed down the fire escape to the street. Sometimes Morrison would boost a car and joyride. He'd go aimlessly, driving and tripping, bring it back at dawn with an empty tank. Tonight would be one of those nights.
2: the Ronettes, a classic from 1964 on Boss Radio 93, KHJ. Top of the hour, 9 o'clock in Los Angeles. It's warm and clear, 73 degrees at the KHJ Studios in Hollywood. KHJ, Boss Hitbound! Here's the number one song this week on your Boss Radio Top 30. It's Bob Dylan, Like a Rolling Stone. to damn in your prime then you keep a say see where do you mind fall you thought save her all you used to laugh aloud up
1: the ramp down broad empty streets winding through canyons Sometimes east, way out of town, out to the Diamond Sky Desert. All that summer, he had music in his head. He could see it. He was a recent graduate of UCLA Film School. Visual was his medium, and daily LSD trips fed the vision. He got his diploma and cleared out of his little student apartment. It was the last time Morrison would ever have a fixed address. The summer of 1965 was metamorphosis. A pudgy, hard-drinking Florida frat boy with a bent for poetry transformed to a lean and hungry prophet of chaos. In his own words, into a lizard king and erotic politician. Fires glowed in the east. The heat was too much to bear in Watts that summer. The rising smoke and fire of angry insurrection deepened the colors of the darkening sky. Blood on the rise, and it's following me.
0: This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want best and you've got it. The hottest man in the land. DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Well, no, a Music. I have a culture. technology and rock and roll
2: and and roll.
0: and now the show.
1: Hello friends and welcome to episode 15 of the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. Christian Swain here. I am the Rock and Roll Archaeologist behind the mic in San Francisco. Okay, Mia culpa. It has been a while. We thank you so much for your patience. Just a couple of things and, and we'll get going. Uh, the website, of course, uh, rockandrollarchaeology.com. Please stop by. There is a donate link if you are so inclined. And this time, if you could, just, we'd like to say, tell your friends. If you love the podcast and you'd like to help us out, let everybody know. We'd like to plug the companion show to this podcast, Deeper Digs in Rock, the special topics, interviews, field trips, all that good stuff. Uh, we've got quite a few Deeper Digs episodes out there now, uh, just to tide you over while we put these main programs together. Now, we just did a very, very cool episode of Deeper Digs in partnership with the Avidus Zildjian Company. So please, go check that one out. It's very similar in tone to the the RNRAPs that you love and are used to. Once again, that's rockandrollarchaeology.com. Bookmark it and stop by from time to time. Thank you. Okay, that's it. We are good. Let's rock. This is episode 15, Slouching towards Bethlehem.
3: We tell ourselves stories in order to live. We look for the sermon in the suicide, for the social or moral lesson in the murder of five. We interpret what we see and select the most workable of the multiple choices. We live entirely by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. Or at least we do for a while.
1: That's from the opening of The White Album, a collection of essays by Joan Didion the most able of California storytellers during these strange days of the late 1960s. Didion admits even her remarkable talent for storytelling is inadequate to the task. The shifting phantasmagoria of experience will not fit in any narrative frame. We are left with a collection of impressions. The birds put sweet harmonies to the book of Ecclesiastes. In song they assured us to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. But the jaded evidence of our overloaded senses gives the lie to such comforting assumptions. We can seek purpose that isn't there, or we can learn to forget.
2: was over it felt like a dream they stood at the stage door and begged for a scream the agents had paid for the black limousine that waited outside in the rain did you see them did you see them Neil Young must have felt like the world was passing him by. He had bombed as a folk singer, he owed everybody in town money, and he was tied to a band whose leader was now in jail. Things weren't exactly looking up, so Young hatched a plan with Bruce Palmer for an escape. They now had a friend in the States, Stephen Stills, supposedly in California, although nobody really had a clue as to where he actually was. They were all hanging out, and the mamas and the papas, California Dreamin' came wafting out of the jukebox. Let's go to California and become rock stars, proclaimed Young. All the lasers
1: The quote was from Jimmy McDonough in his 2002 book, Shaky, Neil Young's Biography. Neil named it Mortimer. Mort for short. The creaky, enormous Pontiac Hearst was actually the second Mortimer. The first one, a Buick had died back in Blind River, Canada. Mort the second made it from Winnipeg, Canada to Hollywood, barely. Neil handled most of the driving. He was paranoid about breaking down in the middle of nowhere, so he took it slow and babied Mortimer across the country on Route 66. The trip took nearly two weeks, according to Bruce Palmer, Neil's Canadian sidekick and an excellent, very underrated bass guitarist. They arrived in Los Angeles on April Fool's Day of 1966.
2: all over my face Where's that silhouette I'm trying to trace Who's putting sponge
1: in the bells I once rung? Richie Fure was, still is, something you don't find enough in the music business, a genuinely nice, uncomplicated guy. He was a solid guitarist and a strong singer, a self-described harmony addict from Dayton, Ohio. Richie's bandmate, Stephen Stills, was different. Stephen was the real deal, a triple threat musical prodigy, a shit-hot guitarist, a talented singer-songwriter, and a multitasking wizard in the studio. And he could be a stubborn, cocky, pain in the ass, sometimes a bully. Stephen and Richie knew each other from their time together in a folk singing group out of New York City, the Agogo Singers. They had something else in common. Back in the fall of 65, while playing Toronto with the Agogos, They both crossed paths with another folk singer who had rock and roll ambitions, Neil Young. Neil was already doing what Richie and Stephen had been thinking about for a while now, playing electrified folk music. He wrote his own songs, and that wounded tenor was so compelling. You could not listen. You couldn't take your eyes off him when he sang. Neil presented as quirky and shy, and he seemed even younger than his 19 years. He didn't stay that way for long. As Neil's musical abilities developed, he became increasingly confident, independent, headstrong. He would end up being more than a match for Stephen Stills. That came later. Here in late March of 66, while Mortimer the Hurst crawled across the continent, Stephen got on the phone with Richie and did some long-distance bullshitting. Come on out to L.A., man. I got a band going. The band consisted of Stephen Stills, and that was it. Stephen was winging it figured, get Richie out to L.A., and together they would figure it out. On April 6, 1966, Stephen and Richie were sitting at a light on Sunset Boulevard. The light changed, and Richie looked down and flicked a fly off his arm and spotted Mortimer, a black hearse with Canadian plates rolling up Sunset in the opposite direction. Honks and shouts and waves and the two vehicles pulled over. Neil and Bruce, Stephen and Richie exchanged handshakes and bro hugs. <coughs>
2: This letter that you wrote the night before, and you really should know better, cause she's worth a whole lot more. But you know, you can't run away and hide. Is that you don't want to see her? cry? is that why you won't go and say goodbye? Then you said, the
1: ball- A few days later, they picked up Dewey Martin, another Canadian expat in LA. Dewey was a few years older, a mod dresser and an experienced drummer. Dewey had a country bluegrass pedigree. He'd gigged with Patsy Cline and Roy Orbison, among others. We weren't looking for Keith Moon, Stephen would later say. Just somebody solid and comfortable with different styles, rock, folk, country, rhythm and blues. It was Dewey who spotted the steamroller with the name Buffalo Springfield stenciled on the side and brought it up as a potential band name. The other guys loved it. After a week of rehearsals, the chemistry was obvious. On April 15th, 1966, two weeks after Neil and Bruce arrived in L.A., Buffalo Springfield played their first gig, opening for the biggest rock band in America at that moment, The Birds.
2: The why oh I can't say I have to let you go, baby, and right away, after what you do, I can't stay on, and i probably feel a whole lot better when you're gone.
1: The Whiskey-A-Go-Go was established in 1964 in West Hollywood. WeHo is incorporated now, but in those days it was governed by the County of Los Angeles. WeHo has always been lively and artsy. Unlike a lot of L.A. neighborhoods, you can actually get around on foot. It's pretty self-contained. The Whiskey started out as a wannabe Vegas club that catered to the film and television crowd. Mainstream, established acts played on the weekends, coats and ties and evening gowns. Weeknights, it was a discotheque, with the DJ suspended in a cage over the dance floor. When a live band played, go-go dancers took over the cage. In early 66, the Whiskey went to full-time live music and got more adventurous with their bookings. Arthur Lee and Love, The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, and finally The Doors, they all played residencies that summer. A whiskey residency was the perfect gig for an up-and-coming band. Two hour-long sets a night, opening for the headliners five nights a week. So you'd get to play regular, try out new material on a live audience. Then you could watch the headliner and pick off some ideas from them. Out of all the L.A. bands who played whiskey residencies during those years, Buffalo Springfield was the best. Their live shows were incendiary.
2: Listen to my bluebird laugh She can't tell you why Deep within her heart you see She knows all I cry Just crying yeah. There she sits A lofty bird's, Stranger's come.
1: In later years, Stephen Stills would say it was too bad they never released a live album. There are some bootlegs that hinted how good they were, but the balance and sound quality isn't that great. Shame, because these guys could deal. Bruce and Dewey were a solid backline. Bruce Palmer was a fine bassist, Buffalo Springfield's secret weapon. He played sinewy, melodic bass lines not unlike Paul McCartney. And the Beatles' comparisons don't end there. Like the Beatles, Springfield had three good singers who could front the band or do strong backups. What set them apart, though, and we love this, it's a great element in live rock and roll, the twin lead guitar attack. Steven Stills played fast and clean, like a bluegrass flat picker. Neil Young would spit out bendy, distorted licks in response. Their live shows always featured Stills' young guitar duels that would build and release, whipping the crowd into a frenzy. Springfield played a two-week residency starting in late April. They were a smash and got held over for another two weeks. The buzz from the whiskey gigs quickly became a roar, and record company types started circling. Atlantic snapped them up soon afterwards. Buffalo Springfield was Atlantic's first big rock and roll signing. There would be many more. Atlantic's founder and president, Ahmed Erdogan, handled it personally. By midsummer, the Buffaloes were in the recording studio.
2: Mr. America, walk on by
0: Your schools that do not teach Mr. America,
4: walk on
2: by The minds that won't be reached Mr. America, try to hide The emptiness that's you inside one...
1: <laughs> That's Hungry Freak's daddy. The opening track from Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention's debut album, Freak Out. We will talk more about Zappa in later episodes. We dig F.C. and all his glorious weirdness. Freak Out was a great debut record. Frank had an incredibly prodigious career. He released something like 100 albums. Most came and went without much notice except from his hardcore fans. Critics dismissed Frank Zappa. Record buyers mostly ignored him. But other musicians, lots of them over the years have noticed and truly admired his work. Artists who have cited Frank's influence run the gamut from John and Paul, from the Beatles to Les Claypool of Primus. When Frank passed in 1993, Trey Anastasio of Fish wrote him a great tribute in Rolling Stone. Frank's touring bands were like a finishing school for badass, technically proficient players. Dozens of First Call Studio Cats played with Zappa at one time or another. As for the writers and critics, we don't get why most critics don't get Zappa. We already talked about how influential he was. He was a trooper, always recording and touring. His records have great playing and sharp production values. He gave smart, funny interviews. As a composer, he was daring, eclectic, and full of surprises. Isn't all this the kind of shit critics are supposed to just love? Not that Frank himself gave the rip about any of this, but we've just always wondered. There was one writer who did get it right. Nick Cohn. Here's what Nick said about Freak Out. He'd take the direst cliches of vaudeville, showbiz, and high school. He'd link them with small declamatory tunes of his own, and he'd weld the whole thing into a series of satiric pop operettas, surreal American nightmares. It was the most self-aware and articulate use that pop had ever been put to. Sometimes he missed his target but more often he was funny, sharp and true
0: But well, I'm about to get upset sick watching my TV checking out
2: the news I tell my eyeballs fail to see I mean to sail it every day'
4: know a rock mess. And what's going to change my brand is anybody's kiss. So I'm watching and I'm waiting, hoping for the best. You don't think I'll go to free. Every time I hear saying that there's
0: no way to
1: be that trouble coming... Middle of May, 1966. Frank Zapp and the Mothers of Invention opened for an out-of-town act at a club called The Trip, a little ways down Sunset from the Whiskey. The exploding plastic inevitable was Andy Warhol's venture into psychedelic multimedia... A live band, none other than the Velvet Underground with Nico. A light show, projected films, improvisational theater, and freaky dancers. All mashed up in a lengthy performance art piece designed to overload the senses. The plastic inevitable was booked for two weeks. The anticipation the buzz ran from one end of Hollywood to the other. Opening night was packed. Lots of movie stars and rock and rollers were there to make the scene. Down front... Baked to the gills on LSD, Jim Morrison was mesmerized. He couldn't get enough. Jim didn't have a lot of company. Warhol and the Velvets flopped in L.A. It didn't go over at all. According to Morrison biographer Stephen Davis, the L.A. crowd just didn't get the dark, jittery Manhattan aesthetic. To them, Warhol's show seemed cold and contrived, emotionally dead. Zappa hated it and wanted out after the first night. They couldn't find anyone to sub for the mothers. Ironically, they tried and failed to get the doors to do it. After just three nights, the plastic inevitable was shut down by the vice squad. They alleged noise complaints and drug dealing. (laughs) It was a mercy killing. Nobody was much interested anyway. But Jim saw every moment of it. And he glimpsed something. He got a sense of the possibilities. Gerard Malonga was peripheral to the show, basically a male go-go dancer. In low-rider leather pants, Malonga did a lurid snake dance to the droning rock-a-rock of the Velvets. He had a strong physical resemblance to Morrison. The photos are pretty startling. The lean build and tossily curly hair, handsome Apollonian features, and just underneath, smoldering Dionysian sexuality. Stephen Davis, from his 2006 book, Jim Morrison, Life,
4: Death legend. The EPI's gig was cancelled, but the damage was done. Jim Morrison had already picked up on the fetishistic possibilities of Gerard Malinga's leathers and starkly theatrical presentation. By the time the Warholites left town, Jim was trying to find a pair of vinyl trousers for himself, and Nico had fallen madly in love with him.
1: The Lizard King was born. A week later, the doors were booked for a residency at the Whiskey that would last the rest of summer. Summer turns to fall in 1966. Let us now turn our attention to the importance of being Ernest. The importance of being Los Angeles County Supervisor, Ernest E. Debs. An important man in an important job. First, let's establish a key fact. Having a freeway named after you is immortality for a Southern California politician. Supervisor Ernest Debs craved that immortality. In 1966, Debs was 62 years of age, a career political hack who had risen to his appropriate level of incompetence, supervisor for Los Angeles County's 3rd District. In those days, Los Angeles County's 3rd District included the Sunset Strip. Ernest Debs was an earnest booster for a truly bad idea, the Laurel Canyon Freeway. It would blast six lanes through the formerly bucolic Laurel Canyon and connect Sunset Strip with the San Fernando Valley. Once that connection was made, the county could redevelop the funky arts-oriented WeHo part of the Strip and turn it into a financial district. This made a ton of sense to absolutely nobody, except Ernest Debs and the wealthy dimwits who contributed to his campaigns. In anticipation of this redevelopment scheme these same dimwits had acquired properties along the Strip and were letting them languish. No point spending money on a place about to get bought up in an eminent domain deal or demolished to make way for an office tower. That's why, even in the midst of a boom economy, there were run-down but affordable places for lease on the Strip, ideal for opening a teen hangout, an all-ages nightclub, or a coffee shop or record store. One such place, an all-ages nightclub called Pandora's Box, at the foot of Laurel Canyon, about eight blocks down the Strip from the Whiskey-A-Go-Go. So, now for the real story of the riot on Sunset Strip in the fall of 1966. Debs and his backers had a problem. Nobody else thought their redevelopment scheme was a good idea. The neighboring city of Beverly Hills refused to cooperate, His fellow Los Angeles supervisors wouldn't play ball either. Third District voters responded with a shrug and asked him, When are you going to fill those potholes? So, if the facts aren't on your side and nobody's buying what you're selling, well then what do you do, Supervisor Debs? You lie. You drum up some phony outrage. Start your very own moral panic. You make scapegoats out of those damn kids and you sick the cops on them.
2: There's battle lines being drawn Nobody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance from behind time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Inside. Safe.
0: whatever it takes is going to be done
1: we're going to be tough we're not going to surrender that area or any other area to beatniks or wild-eyed kids that's Buffalo Springfield, of course, and a quote from Ernest Debs himself, cited in Dominic Peore’s fine book, Riot on Sunset Strip. In the summer of 1966, at the direction of Supervisor Debs, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department started aggressively patrolling the Sunset Strip. A 10 p.m. curfew law for miners gave cops free reign to stop and hassle anyone who looked young. As the summer became the fall, the harassment escalated. It came to a head on November 12th, when the Board of Supervisors voted to close down and demolish the Pandora's Box nightclub. That night, a thousand or so youngsters, with celebrities sprinkled throughout the crowd, showed up, sat down, and blocked traffic at the corner of Sunset and Crescent Heights. They sang songs and carried signs, Stop Police Brutality, We Are Your Children, and Ban the Billy Club three busloads of cops rolled up, donned riot gear, and waded into the crowd. They proceeded to crack heads and make arrests. So, the riot on Sunset Strip was a pretty one-sided riot. More accurately, it was a rowdy but peaceful demonstration that went bad because of police violence. A field day for the heat. It wasn't the first time, and it certainly wouldn't be the last.
2: Hey, it's the monkeys on Boss Radio. Sunny and hot today, 86 degrees, and climbing at KHJ Studios in Hollywood. More music, KHJ. We've got a new entry to your Boss Radio Top 30, one of LA's own. This is the birds, and if you want to be a rock and roll star, then hear what I say. Listen all day to 93 KHJ!
1: Throughout early 1967, the Mothers and the Doors crossed paths on a lot of the club's circuit. Frank Zappa got the Doors. He liked and respected them. He dug the band's jazz approach and Jim's dark poetry. Very cool. Zappa talked them up to his record company, the legendary jazz label Verve. They passed. Warner Brothers checked them out and passed. Columbia signed the Doors to a holding deal but never made a move. After a few months, the Doors asked to be released, and Columbia obliged them. Arthur Lee, the charismatic lead singer for Love, a really underrated L.A. band from those years, Arthur was also a big proponent of the Doors. Love recorded for a new label, Elektra, and it was Elektra who ended up bagging the Doors. The company booked time at Sunset Sound and assigned a producer, a brash, no-nonsense tough guy from New Jersey, name of Paul Rothschild. The Doors' self-titled debut album dropped in January of 1967. Electro Records plunked down serious cash to promote it. They even put up a giant billboard overlooking the Strip. The first time ever for that. But the single tanked. Album sales were good, but nothing special. Months went by. As spring turned to summer, the Doors had an album out. They were playing every night to pack houses but they were still sleeping on floors and eating once a day. In late April, Rothschild decided to edit down the last track on side one. He cut the long, train inspired jams out of the middle and shaved it down to three and a half minutes. Then he called the guys down to Sunset Sound to give it a listen. The Doors reluctantly agreed to release the shorter version as a single.
2: It would be untrue You know that I would be a liar if I was to say to you Girl we couldn't get much higher Come on baby night my fire Come on baby like my fire
1: It's easy to see why it was a hit Even without the groovy solos in the middle Big ups to Robbie Krieger. Light My Fire was mostly his composition, the first song he ever wrote. And Robbie's fluid, jazzy workout in the jam section, the part Rothschild's cut, is a great guitar solo, one of our favorites. The Lizard King is in there too, we just don't meet him right away. Drummer John Densmore starts it with a rifle crack of snare and a driving beat that settles into a Latin-flavored groove on the verse. Flamenco guitarist Jose Feliciano picked up on that when he made his own hit version of the song a year later. Ray Manzarek's Carnival organ hook was equal parts Cold Train and Bach, and it sounds fresh and happy, shimmering chords over a lounge lizard groove and Morrison's Frank Sinatra croon except he's a younger, hotter version of Frank. It's all strictly commercial, catchy as can be. And then, try now we can only lose, and our love become a funeral pyre. (laughs) Sex and love and death and fire, it's a fitting introduction to the doors. Joan Didion, once again.
3: The Doors were different. The Doors interested me. The Doors seemed unconvinced that love was brotherhood in the Kama Sutra. The Doors' music insisted that love was sex and sex was death and therein lay salvation. The Doors were the Norman Mailers of the Top 40, missionaries of apocalyptic sex.
1: Most of musical L.A. went north in the third week of June to play at the Monterey Pop Festival. The Birds, the Mamas and the Papas, Buffalo Springfield with David Crosby subbing for Neil Young, they all played sets. No summer of love for the Doors. Cancel their subscription to the Resurrection. The Doors were in New York City on tour. The shows were some of the best they ever played, and the New York tastemakers loved the Doors. Rock journalism was still in its infancy, but there were plenty of feature writers who were intrigued by the two Morrisons, the soft-spoken brooding poet who became a prophet of chaos into the hot lights. And it should be said right here. Jim Morrison gave great interviews. There was some space cadet mumbo-jumbo, but everybody talked like that in the 60s. But there was undeniable depth— Jim could shift gears in mid-interview, talk about experimental theater, Fellini films, the poetry of William Blake and Arthur Rimbaud. The New York literati ate it up, and so did their readers. Light My Fire was the summer hit of 1967, the number one single in America, and album sales were surging. In a blink, the doors vaulted over everyone else on the L.A. scene. Folks were now calling them the American Rolling Stones. It was not an unfitting description. The previous summer, while the Doors played clubs and worked out the songs that ended up on the debut record, when they weren't listening to John Coltrane, they were soaking up the Rolling Stones' fourth album, their first dark masterpiece, Aftermath. Songs like Painted Black, Under My Thumb, 19th Nervous Breakdown, and an 11-minute album closer, I'm Going Home. That summer, Electra cut each of the doors, a check for 50 grand, and told the guys, whatever you want. Robbie and Ray got home recording studios. John got a thoroughbred riding horse. The Lizard King wanted a Cobra, a blue Shelby Mustang, a powerful, low-slung brood of a muscle car. Jim loved it. He managed to keep it for almost a year before he totaled it. The follow-up album, Strange Days, came out in the fall.
2: when
1: strange, when strange. The chaos that took place at his feet during concerts, the surge and swirl, the ebb and flow of the crowd, that interested Morrison far more than the music playing behind him. When the doors started playing bigger halls, Jim started tightrope walking along the edge of the stage during the instrumental breaks. Sometimes he fell into the chaotic swirl of the audience, was engulfed by it and then ejected out of the maelstrom back onto the stage a few minutes later. The first couple of times, Ray and Robbie and John freaked, didn't know what to do, but in time, his fall from the stage and his subsequent rebirth became part of the dark ceremony the shaman conducted.
2: I went insane like a smoke rain day when the wind blows. Now I won't be back
1: till later on. Neil Young wanted out. It wasn't all just Neil being stubborn, uncompromising. In other words, being Neil Young. He had some legitimate gripes. Stephen Stills bullied him, pushed him around. Richie Fure sang most of his songs because the record company didn't like his weird voice. In any case, there was only room for a couple of his tunes on each album. His Canadian buddies Dewey Martin and Bruce Palmer were no help. They seemed more interested in getting high and chasing women. Neil left Buffalo Springfield in June, a week before Monterey. David Crosby filled in, but the Monterey show was a dud. The guys were disappointed at blowing a big opportunity, and they blamed it on Neil. It just wasn't Buffalo Springfield if somebody wasn't seriously pissed off at Shaky. But the new single Bluebird was charting, and Springfield was booked solid for months. After Monterey, they brought in Doug Hastings, who was a good player and a great guy, but he wasn't Neil Young. So they were all furious with Neil. But the guys also realized the onstage fireworks just weren't there without him. Neil wanted out of his contract with Atlantic so he could go solo, but the company wasn't having it. So, like it or not, Neil had to go back to working with Buffalo Springfield. It was either that or don't work at all. So in late July, Neil started making nice. Here's John Einerson from his 1997 book,
4: For What It's Worth. On August 10th, following an airing of differences and pledges of mutual admiration, Stephen agreed and Neil was officially at Buffalo once again. With the original Five United, recording sessions were booked with the goal of completing a long overdue second album and recording a follow-up single to Bluebird.
1: The second album, titled Buffalo Springfield Again, came out in the fall. It's a great record, full of variety and surprises. One of the best albums of the 60s. But the band that made it was already headed for another breakup. By the following summer, Springfield was over. They played their final concert on May 5th, 1968 in Long Beach. Stills and Young and Fure would all go on to bigger things. And the gentle folk rock, the harmony singing, continued up in the canyons a sweet hippie dream expressed in song, the L.A. sound. But it was a movie set, a front, a brightly painted facade. Behind that facade, shadows and dark corners, time hurtled headlong into the fateful, violent summer of 1968, and down on the strip, down at street level, where king snakes crawled and midnight alleys roamed, there was another kind of L.A. sound. Another kind of attitude in the air.
2: Is everybody in? Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. Wake up! Keep the lights out for this one, all right? If I do one, baby.
1: In the seance, the shaman led. A senuous panic, deliberately evoked through drugs, chants, dancing, hurls the shaman into trance. Changed voice, convulsive movement, he acts like a madman. These professional hysterics, chosen precisely for their psychotic leaning, were once esteemed. That's from the Lords of the New Creatures, a volume of poetry by James Douglas Morrison. Fan mail interested Morrison. He was moved by it, found it beautiful and lonely. He was a spy in the House of Love. He felt a voyeuristic thrill when strangers would bear their souls to him. In nineteen sixty eight the doors rented an office and rehearsal space in West Hollywood. Jim would saunter in and sit on the sofa for hours browsing fan mail. It seemed to bring out the better angels of Morrison's nature. He'd go quiet and thoughtful for a while, sometimes even show off his sly sense of humor. He'd been arrested on stage in New Haven at the end of 1967, about a month later on a sidewalk in Las Vegas. The lawyers spread some money around and made the charges go away, but promoters were spreading the word around. The doors were trouble, more trouble than they were worth. There were promoters willing to take a chance, but it was second-tier stuff. Roller rinks, run-down ballrooms, small colleges. The better venues in New York, L.A., and San Francisco were still booking them, but there were big areas of the country where the doors were strangers. So they settled into a pattern. Hang around L.A. during the week and fly out to play three shows somewhere on the weekend, usually on one of the coasts. The Friday night show would be awful, the second night a little bit better, and on Sunday nights, the Doors would kill. There were lots of reasons for the problems they had on the road. Bad sound gear, crooked promoters, crappy travel and accommodations. In 1968, the financial, technical and logistical challenges of large-scale rock concerts were still being figured out. It didn't help that the Doors never did find a competent manager someone who could have smoothed out these problems.
2: Show me the
1: Really, first and last, the biggest problem was the booze. By the spring of 1968, Jim Morrison was lost at the bottom of a bottle, a hopeless alcoholic. A few square blocks of West Hollywood were his world. The Doors Office, a few blocks away from the budget motel he stayed at most nights. Barney's Beanery, The Whiskey, and Gazzari's. A topless bar called The Phone Booth. He would reel drunkenly through his neighborhood in his leather rock star gear, shit-faced by noon, provoking people. One of his many unappealing habits when drunk, screaming out racial slurs in public. More than once, Morrison got his ass kicked for dropping the N-bomb. He crashed cars, got bounced from clubs, lurched around in a state of walking blackout and would come to a few hours later in a parking lot or an alley, lying in his own vomit, leather pants soaked in piss. When his drunken-ass holishness provoked someone to violence, Morrison would go weirdly passive. Jim would take the beat down silently, without fighting back or even covering up, as if at some level he knew he deserved to be hurt. Maybe that's what he was really after. His bandmates had no idea what he was after. These guys rarely drank, dug beat poetry and bop jazz. They did yoga and transcendental meditation. They lit incense and sipped organic apple juice while they played. They didn't know where this car was headed. They just knew a crazy drunk was at the wheel, and they were picking up speed.
2: the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. On April 4th,
1: 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis. In L.A., everyone kept a wary eye on South Central and downtown. It was tense, but nothing big broke loose that night. L.A. stayed calm, sort of. The rest of America exploded. There were uprisings in at least 39 cities that first night. The unrest would continue for weeks. In West Hollywood that evening, Jim Morrison went to the phone booth club and got shitfaced watching the topless dancers. Later that night, he ran through Sunset Boulevard traffic, playing toro with cars and screaming the N word. This time, he managed not to get his ass kicked. He just passed out in the bushes, uh, behind the Clear Thoughts building, where his bandmates would take meditation classes. We come
2: on this Luke John Bean, my
1: by 1968, the Beach Boys were passe. Nowadays, Pet Sounds, Brian Wilson's contemplative harmonious 1966 masterpiece, is rightly remembered as one of the best rock albums ever made. But in 68, it was just an expensive flop from two years ago, a cautionary tale. Flying down Sunset Boulevard in his Ferrari, Dennis Wilson was headed home after a long night in the studio. He wasn't really needed there, Dennis rarely sang, and the Beach Boys usually brought in a session drummer to play on their recordings. But Dennis loved his troubled, brilliant older brother, looked up to him, and worried about him at the same time. He knew Brian's mental health was tenuous, and he had a pretty good sense of the pressure he was under from everybody. The fans, the press, the band, the record company. Needed or not, Dennis was there to show support, to stick up for Brian. At about 3 a.m., things wrapped up. No traffic. Dennis was home in 12 minutes. The silver Ferrari nosed into the long driveway off of Sunset Strip. There was a school bus parked at the top.
3: I imagined that my own life was simple and sweet, and sometimes it was. But there were odd things going around town. There were rumors, there were stories, everything was unmentionable, but... Nothing was unimaginable. This sense that it was possible to go too far and that many people were doing it was very much with us in Los Angeles in 1968 and 1969.
1: Late spring of 1968, his hour come round at last. A rough beast was slouching towards Los Angeles to be born. Like Jim Morrison, he could fairly be called a prophet of chaos, a missionary of apocalyptic sex. He heard music in his head, he equated love with death, and he saw rock music as a way to communicate his dark vision to young people. The similarities end there. He might have been an abusive, drunken asshole, but Jim Morrison actually had real talent, looks, and charisma. Charlie Manson had none of these. His only talent was a con man's ability to manipulate weak-minded people. He was 33 years old in 1968, a car thief, pimp, and small-time criminal who had spent more than half his life behind bars. During his time at Terminal Island, his cellmate told him his music had potential. You should polish that stuff up and try to sell it, man. Upon his release from federal custody, he got permission to head up to San Francisco, where he began to gather family around him. As San Francisco's summer of love moment—and it was only a moment—started to dissolve in late 67, Charlie headed back to L.A. with his new family in tow.
2: How does it feel to be One of the beautiful people Now that you know
1: The lights were on. The magical mystery tour was blasting away on the stereo. A party underway. Dennis Wilson stepped out of his sleek little car and was startled by the approach of a short, scruffy man. The man moved in closer. Too close. Dennis stepped back. Something about the look in his eyes. "'Are you going to hurt me?' Dennis blurted out. "'Do I look like I'm going to hurt you, brother?' Charlie Manson knelt at Dennis Wilson's feet and kissed his sneakers. Dennis didn't know it at the time, but this was one of Charlie's set pieces, a humble bragging way of ingratiating himself. Looking out over the kneeling form of this wannabe musician-slash-cult leader, Dennis could see at least a dozen young women parading around his living room in various states of undress. Crazy. Crazy. It started out when he picked up a pair of young women hitchhiking on Pacific Coast Highway and took them home. The afternoon passed pleasantly enough, and Dennis told the girls, Ella Jo Bailey and Patricia Krenwinkel, you do make yourself at home. I'll be back late. This is what he came home to. Charlie arose and beckoned him inside, just like he owned the place or something. Dennis shrugged and followed his wizard.
2: It's a hot and sunny noon on a Tuesday in June. School's out, let's head for the beach. KHJ news traffic and weather at 20 past the hour. But first, brand new music from one of LA's biggest hit makers. It's only been out a week and it's already in your Boss Radio Top 30. Say hello, I love you. To the doors! I love you, let me jump in your game He's walking down the street Blind to where I see me. Do you
1: think you'll be the guy On Tuesday, June 4, 1968, Robert Kennedy won the California Democratic primary. He entered the race late, but his simple message, Bring America Home from Vietnam, That message caught fire. California's primary was winner-take-all, and RFK surged ahead of the other anti-war candidate, Minnesota Senator Eugene McCarthy, in the delegate count. There was no clear winner yet, but the next primary round was in New York State, Kennedy's home turf. The victory party was at the Ambassador Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Around midnight, the mayor asked them to wrap it up. As Senator Kennedy left the celebration, some kook with a gun cut him down. He died a few hours later. As it turned out, the hope of ending the Vietnam War anytime soon probably died with him.
2: And now what has been going on within the United States over the period of the last three years, the divisions, the violence, the disenchantment with our society, the divisions, whether it's between blacks and whites, between the poor and the more affluent, or between age groups, or in the war in Vietnam, that we can start to work together. We are a great country, and a selfish country, and a compassionate country. And I intend to make that my basis for running and over the period of that year. It
4: still has the gun. The gun is pointed at me right at this moment. I hope they can get the gun out of his hand. <laughs> Be very careful.
0: Holy him, we don't want another Oswald. 1968
1: was already a murderous year, and it wasn't even half over yet. I <laughs> do July 24th, 1968, Jim Morrison submitted a manuscript, his first book of poetry, The Lords and the New Creatures. Around that same time, Jim told Ray Manzarek, I want to quit. I just can't take it anymore. I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. The office got very quiet. Ray noticed that Morrison looked tired, dead tired. It went on like this for quite a while. Jim declaring it was too much, he couldn't take it, and Ray consoling and conjoling him. Come on, man, just give it six months. After that, if you still feel the same, fine, we'll break up the ban. Stephen Davis, once again.
4: This episode was immediately rationalized by the bewildered, fearful Doors and their employees as a typical Morris employee to get attention. Nobody around Jim realized that he was indeed suffering a nervous breakdown, one from which he probably never recovered as his untreated stress-related condition evolved into numbing self-medication and behavior that could be described as intermittent psychosis.
2: Wait! There's been a slaughter here! Don't stop to speak or look around, your gloves and fan are on the ground, we're getting out of town, we're going on the run, and you're the one I want to come.
1: The door like plain in San Francisco. The promoter of the Fillmore West, Bill Graham, was exactly the type of hyper-intense authority figure Morrison liked to fuck with, but for whatever reason, Bill Graham got Jim to mostly toe the line. It wasn't always like that. Back in 67, Jim got drunk and fucked off a whole show one night. Graham let it be known that he had had it with the doors. Morrison went to the Fillmore offices the next day, apologized in person, and salvaged the relationship. Graham booked the Doors often, and for good money. They did a lot of Bill Graham joints with the Jefferson Airplane. That bill had some chemistry. It really worked. The Airplane and the Doors decided to team up for a European tour in the fall of 1968. There was talk of a big arena tour of America at the start of the following year. Just give it six more months, Jim. In the morning. Sweet springtime, 1969, in Los Angeles. A sunny and harmonious pause before the shit hits the fan. Gentle spring will give way to a long hot summer, our fifth summer in Los Angeles. Looking back on 1969, just a few years later, Hunter
2: S. Thompson wrote We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. Come on, come on, come on, not touch me babe. Can't you see that I am What was that promise that you made? Why't you tell me what? She
1: said? Morrison's estrangement from the band was increasing, and wasn't just drunken shithead stuff. He was furious at them for selling out. And he had good reason to feel that way. At the end of 1968, the other three doors had agreed to license out Light My Fire to General Motors as an advertising jingle for a new model Buick. Come on, Buick, Light My Fire. They'd been unable to contact Jim, so they had his attorney sign for him. When he got back to L.A. and heard the news, Morrison was livid. The ad was squashed, but the damage was done. "'I no longer have brothers,' he told one of his drinking buddies." I have business associates. Jim was unhappy with the fourth album, The Soft Parade, released in July of 69. It took nearly a year and cost a fortune to make, and it was flabby, mushy bullshit. He loathed it and went out of his way to avoid promoting it. He was not alone in feeling that way. The album went gold, and Touch Me was a hit single, but the critics crapped all over it, and The Soft Parade songs didn't go over live. The doors had stalled commercially, creatively. They were in a rut and couldn't agree what to do to get out of it. What's more, the kids on the Strip had long since moved on. In early 1969, a bombastic new British act, fronted by this year's model of an erotic politician, took the stage at the whiskey. Led Zeppelin burned it
4: down. They
1: were sensational. Stephen Davis
4: the story. Led Zepp's explosive arrival immediately consigned the Doors and their ilk to old farthood. as far as the strip's teenage customers were concerned. Graham Parsons' hot new country rock group, the Flying Burrito Brothers, did the same thing to the Birds and Buffalo Springfield.
1: That spring, the Doors tried to get out of L.A. They hit the road for an extended U.S. tour, but it crashed and burned on opening night in Miami. Jim was arrested on stage. He would spend most of the next year out on bail, awaiting trial in Florida on multiple felonies, lewd conduct, inciting a riot, resisting arrest. The Miami story has been well told elsewhere. We especially like the 2009 Tom DeCillo documentary, When You're Strange. Narrated by Johnny Depp, the film was assembled using contemporaneous footage of the Doors. It's thorough and well-sourced, and has a nice gritty feel to it. We recommend it. So, check that one out. But right now, let's keep the story right here in L.A. So, the tour was kaput, and the band was idle for nearly five months. Pamela Corson, Jim's on-again, off-again girlfriend, stepped up her campaign Pam hated the other guys and wasn't shy about saying so. She wanted Jim to put a ring on it, leave the doors, and pursue his interests in poetry and film. That summer, he finalized a deal with Simon & Schuster to publish his first volume of poetry, The Lords and the New Creatures. He was already working on a second volume, with a working title of An American Prayer. In June, he sat down with a Rolling Stone reporter That interview, published the following month, showed a Morrison who had shed his lizard skin and was seeking to reinvent himself. Rolling Stone published some excerpts from An American Prayer alongside the interview piece. But the boozing continued unabated, and on top of that, he had acquired a taste for cocaine. Pam preferred heroin, and before long Jim was messing with that too. Just another frustrated musician, another L.A. wannabe. He rolled into town dreaming of stardom, and for a while there, it seemed like it might happen. Charlie made influential friends, met some of the beautiful people. They seemed interested in him, his music, his message. Until they weren't. Dennis Wilson's infatuation was over. The family had taken over his house, his cars, and Charlie hit him up constantly for big sums of money. Dennis tried, Lord, how he tried. For months, he took his grubby little murder guru with him everywhere, introduced him to everybody. But the interest was feigned. Folks were just being polite. Charlie could carry a tune, but he was a campfire guitarist and amateur. His original material was derivative and tedious and more than a little creepy. Neil Young met him, heard some of his stuff, and sized him up. More of a song spewer than a songwriter. It wasn't happening. Nobody was going to sign Charlie Manson to a record deal. Dennis moved out a month before the lease expired, and left the dirty task of evicting Manson and the family to the property manager. The family... Ended up at the far end of the valley, the Spawn movie ranch in Chatsworth. Danger on the edge of town. Michelle Phillips, the tall, strikingly beautiful singer for the Mamas and Papas, woke with a start. Her husband John heard something. He grabbed his gun and went downstairs while Michelle hid in the closet. John hit the bottom of the stairs just in time to see six people, dressed in black from head to toe, quickly exit the house and run down the driveway. Early summer of 1969 in Los Angeles. John and Michelle Phillips had just been creepy-crawled by the Manson family. It was a dress rehearsal. Once again, Joan Didion.
3: On August 9th, 1969, I was sitting in the shallow end of my sister-in-law's swimming pool in Beverly Hills when she received a telephone call from a friend who had just heard about the murders on Silo Drive. The phone rang many times during the next hour, and these reports were garbled and contradictory. I remember all of the day's misinformation very clearly. And I also remember this, and wish I did not. I remember that no one was surprised.
1: In the early morning hours of August 9th, 1969, five people were slaughtered at the home of actress Sharon Tate in Benedict Canyon. Manson sent his little band of psychopaths to seal dry because he thought it was the home of Terry Melcher. Terry was a friend of Dennis Wilson's, a record producer and agent who could have given Charlie a shot at rock stardom. But Manson's charms and talent were lost on Terry Melcher. Terry shined him on, politely at first, but then not so politely. So, Charlie filled the empty little heads of his followers with some apocalyptic race-war horseshit and sent them out to commit this atrocity. On the evening of the ninth. The murder troll sent his zombie brigade out again. They killed two more people in similar gruesome fashion. This time, it was just over the hill from Hollywood in the Las Feliz neighborhood. In the space of 24 hours, the Tate-LaBianca murders changed the L.A. music scene forever. A pall of fear crept in like thick freeway smog over the beach, over the strip, up into the canyons. It was months before the killers were arrested, and during that time, L.A. went into panicky lockdown. Guard dogs and guns were in short supply. Suspicion and fear were abundant. has
2: been a long- This
1: is Todd Gitlin from his 1987 book, The Sixties, Years of Hope, Days of Rage. In those plummeting days, every stark fact was pressed into world historical significance. Teenage vandalism became blows against the empire. Guerrilla attacks permuted into fronts of the single world revolution. For the mass media, the acid head Charles Manson was ready-made as the monster lurking in the heart of every long hair, the rough beast slouching to Beverly Hills to be born for the next millennium. If anything, Kitlin understates it. In Los Angeles, across America, and around the world, the mass media went absolutely nuts on this story. Every twist and turn of the investigation, every trivial detail about the killers, about the victims, relevant or not, was endlessly examined and speculated upon. The fear metastasized and spread fast. Across America, the simmering resentment about hippie counterculture boiled over. That young person with a thumb out wasn't some gentle peacenik hitching a ride. It was a murderous cult member. In that terrible summer, the high and beautiful wave crested, crashed, and broke. A powerful riptide started pulling everything back out to sea.
2: This is the end. Beautiful friend, this is the end. My only friend, the end of our beloved love, the end of everything that's
1: done. We've seen that there were two Morrisons. There was Jim, observant, poetic, quick-witted someone who created new language, who pushed old words into new shapes. And there was the guy the other doors called Jimbo, a reckless drunk, a defiant, heedless narcissist slipping further into madness. We see also that there are two L.A.'s. There's the sweet life, the mansions in the canyons, the swimming pools of the elite. Behind and beneath that facade, the dark and desperate shuffle of the street— Up the canyon roads, quaint country stores and guitars on the porch. Down on the strip, a different beat. Prophets of chaos and hungry freaks. There is no Hollywood ending here. No pivotal scene that turns the story around and ties things up neatly. We try to make meaning out of this messy, shifty mosaic of impressions and find we can make none. We are left with colliding memories and a restless feeling that maybe an opportunity was missed here. We are certain only of this. Time has passed. Five seasons have come and gone in Los Angeles. We met a lot of different people. Some of them will go on from here and some of them will not now the soft light fades. The last summer is over.
2: The end of laughter and soft light. The end of This
1: is the end. I'm Christian Swain and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. Thank you for listening and see you next time in San Francisco.
0: The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson from Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.